0: All right, there we go. We're good. If you picked up one of our worship guides on the way in, if you would turn, open that and turn to the inside, um, one of the inside pages there, you'll notice that we have, each month, we have a prayer focus as a church. And uh, I don't know if you've seen these before. We, we try to mention, mention them at the beginning of each month. Uh, as we started 2019, uh, we are focusing this year as a church and into the next couple of years as being a place where we Practice the way of Jesus, specifically as we think about uh, following Jesus and what it means to be followers of Jesus. That that involves practicing certain, uh, maybe if you've grown up in church, you've referred to them as disciplines, practices, means that God has given us as individuals and in a community to know Him more. They aren't. They aren't. Uh, Things in and of themselves that we worship or that we, you know, find our righteousness in. We only find that in Jesus and knowing him and being in relationship with him. But God in his grace has given us practices to experience that week in and week out in our lives, in our families, as a community together. And so we began this year, uh, 2019, just recognizing that we as a people have a hard time resting. We are a people that are busy. Uh, Our culture thrives on busyness filling our schedule up. Uh, if you're like me, I find a lot of identity in being able to look at my weeks and see all of the things that I can do and the people that I can meet with, the things that, I can, that my kids can be involved in. I take a lot of pride in that. I take a lot of identity in that. And so one of the things that we recognize as a church is that God has called us to be a people of rest to be people who don't find our identity in our busyness, but we find it in being with him and with each other. And that requires us slowing down. It requires us taking intentional time during the day, during our weeks, during our months to be with him, to rest, to find rest physically, to find rest emotionally, to even find rest relationally as we're carving out time to be with each other just unhurried, with no agenda, not trying to be in a transactional relationship with each other, but just enjoying each other's presence. And so this month of March, our prayer focus is rest. As a community, I want to encourage you to to take some time, to take this home with you. Uh, Put it in your Bible, put it in, you know, by on your nightstand beside your bed, Uh, stick it in your car at your desk at work, and to commit whether it's daily, whether it's a couple of times a week, to pull this out and just pray that these things would be true of you, that they would be true of your family, that they would be true of our church, that we would be a community of people in just a hurried and chaotic world who bring the hope of Jesus, the peace of Jesus into our communities by resting by slowing down, by letting the Lord do work in our lives and in our relationships with each other. So before our teaching this morning, let me lead us in a time of prayer where we ask these things to be true of us and we ask God's Spirit to help us in this way. Lord Jesus, we recognize that you have called us out, that you have set us apart as people, as a community of people who claim to follow you. We also recognize that so often our lives and what our life requires and what our society values runs counter to the things that you say are important and that you say are true. We pray that in the midst of chaos, that you would give us a spirit of peace as individuals and as a community. We pray that when we are tempted to earn your acceptance, when we're tempted to earn the acceptance of other people, that we would be reminded and that we would live in the truth that you invite us into a life that you say is easy and your burden is light. It doesn't mean that it's devoid of, of hard things, but God, we know that you aren't heaping burdens on our shoulders, that you're not asking us to do things that you will not give us the power to do. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as we are tired, and even just this morning, I know so many people are just physically sick. We have so many kids and and, and adults that are just sick right now and uh, that are just in the throes of these winter months. We just pray that you would give us rest, that you would grant us healing physically for our bodies Um, We pray, God, that you would help us to settle into a rest that you give for our souls. Um, We pray that as we listen to your word this morning, as we continue to sing and to pray this morning, as we meet with our missional communities during the week, as we invite others into our home, I pray that even in our doing and in our relationships, that you would allow us to find a soul rest a rest that knows that we are secure, that we are safe with you, that your spirit indwells us. And Lord, as we begin to experience that as a community and as people, I pray that others that do not know you, others who are just caught up in the vicious cycle of doing more and performing more and trying to find more and more and more that in their relationships with us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members that do not know you, I pray that they would experience a peace and a hope in us that would cause them to ask, what is that about? Would you make us a community of peace in a chaotic world, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, we've been in the book of Exodus since the beginning of February, um, and this is going to be our last um, look at Exodus for a little while. Next week, we are going to start a new mini-series, like I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, on our next spiritual practice, which is prayer. Prayer. And so we're going to spend a few weeks preaching and teaching on prayer and what the Bible has to say about prayer, how we as a community can practice prayer. We're going to talk about that. We're going to workshop that in some of our missional community groups, um, leading us up to Easter. We're going to take some time out to do uh, a few special teachings around the Easter holiday, Good Friday, uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, and then after that, we're going to jump back in to uh, the book of Exodus. But we have been spending some time here at the beginning of Exodus and And let me just give you a little bit, for those of you who are visiting this morning or who haven't been here for a few weeks, where have we been? Where are we coming from? What have we seen in the book of Exodus? And really the overarching thing that we've seen here in the first four chapters of Exodus is that God himself has begun to reveal himself to his people in new ways. He's begun to, uh, first and foremost with Moses, to reveal who he is. And we saw that in chapter 3. We saw God coming to Moses and revealing himself as a God who is holy, a God who who is compassionate, a God who is sovereign over the events of this world and the deliverance of his people. We see a God who is a loving God. And in that, God calls Moses, he commissions Moses to be a deliverer for his people. His people have been enslaved in Egypt for close to 400 years at this point. And God calls Moses to be his representative, his deliverer, to go to his people enslaved in in Egypt and to bring them out of Egypt. But as we saw last week Moses was not very gung-ho about this idea. You know God commissions him he says God even tells him I will be with you in this. I'm going to empower you in this. This is actually how this is going to go down and play out and Immediately, Moses begins to backpedal and find all of these excuses about why he isn't the guy, why he shouldn't be the guy, why God should look for someone else to use. And each time God overcomes Moses' objections with truth and with his presence, he overcomes Moses' objections and his fears about his past, his fear about not being up to the challenge, his unbelief. That God can really do what God has said he is going to do. And what we've seen over and over and over again in God revealing himself to Moses is the overarching theme of this story of Exodus. Is that it's not about Moses. It's not about God's people. Ultimately, it's about God himself. It's about God making himself known. Letting Moses, letting the people of Israel, letting the nations of the world see his power and know his plan. So we're going to finish this chapter up this morning in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. If you're using one of the Bibles around you, you can find that on pages 27. 27 and 28, Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And I just want to warn you, this is a weird passage. There are some things here that are really bizarre. Uh, There's a lot of ambiguities in this passage. And so we're going to take some time after we read that to work through some of these things. But what we're going to see are some clear truths about God that I think are going to encourage you this morning. So starting in verse 18. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife, And his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Let's stop right there for a moment. So we shouldn't assume that there's a gap in time between chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 18. Just because there's a section break there in our Bible, we shouldn't make that assumption that a period of time has gone by. Because what we see here is that Moses leaves this encounter with God in the passage beforehand, even as God has gone great lengths to assure Moses, to give Moses confidence in his ability to lead because God is going to be with him. Even as God has given Moses confidence in saying, here's how this is actually going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. We have no evidence here that Moses leaves this encounter with God any more self-assured, any more confident that he did going into it. But he leaves nonetheless and he goes back to his father-in-law Jethro to ask for his blessing to leave. Now, obviously, Moses is doing this out of a, a show of respect and gratitude because if you remember, Moses fled Egypt and this man took him into his family. He married one of his daughters. This man gave him a job and provided for him. Jethro had been super kind to Moses uh, during this time. And so Moses goes back to his father-in-law and asks for his blessing. But it's interesting, isn't it, that what how Moses asked for this blessing and why why he says he has to leave. He doesn't come to his father-in-law and say, hey, God appeared to me in a burning bush and told me that I am supposed to go back to Egypt, that I fled 40 years ago for my life because God is going to use me to bring millions and millions of people out of Egypt into a promised land. No, he basically says, let me go back so I can see if my people the Israelites, my countrymen, if I can see if they're still alive, if I can see see what their situation is. So Moses kind of half-truths this thing to Jethro for, I don't know, a number of different reasons. Maybe he's not completely forthcoming about why, because Jethro may not understand, Jethro may not believe him, it may create more questions than answers. Maybe he won't get the blessing from Jethro to go and to take his family with him. Whatever the reason is, he comes to Jethro, asks for his blessing. He gets that blessing, and we read here that he packs up his family, and he begins to head towards Egypt. This is significant in in Moses' life, and the revelations that God gives to him in this passage that we read are also very significant. The first one being, God says, go back to Egypt because the men who were seeking to kill you are dead. Remember, Moses committed murder in Egypt. He murdered an Egyptian that he saw beating some some Israelites um, uh, very severely. He, he, He murders this Egyptian, and then he flees. And because Pharaoh finds out about this, others find out about this, and they're seeking to kill Moses. So he flees. He flees to Midian, where we find him here. God tells him, all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And what that tells us here is that there's a new Pharaoh that has come onto the scene, a new ruler of Egypt. And God This is not God saying to Moses, hey, I've been waiting for this to happen. And now that all these guys are dead, now my plan can go ahead uh, and and we can get this thing done. No, this is God communicating to Moses that he is in control. God is communicating that every single part of Moses' story, every single part of this plan that God has to redeem his people and bring them out of slavery is under God's control. There is no part that is outside of his control and his understanding. The second thing that God says to Moses is that Moses is to make sure that he does all all the miracles that God had gave him to do. All of those mighty signs that we read about in the passages beforehand and all of the things that we're gonna see in the passages coming up, all of these things, God makes sure Moses knows, I want you to do these things because I want you to know, I want Pharaoh to know, and I want my people to know that my power is with you that my power is in this, that this is not just some grand plan with no power to execute. I want you to know that I am with you. I want everybody else to know that I am with you and that I'm powerful to deliver my people from out of slavery in Egypt. And then the last thing, the third revelation that we see here that God gives Moses is that, and this is kind of a confusing one, this is a puzzling one. He says, I want you to go and I want you to show Pharaoh all of these powerful signs. I want you to show Pharaoh and the people, my people, all of these things that I am capable of doing So that Pharaoh will see these things and say, yes, I will let your people go. But then in the next breath, what does God say to Moses? After you do these signs, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he won't let my people go. That doesn't make any sense, does it? That seems contradictory to what God's plan is. We're going to dive into this tension a little bit more fully in coming uh, weeks as we're re- preaching through Exodus. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it here. But to say this, God told Moses that all of the following would be true. He's sending Moses to Pharaoh to show Pharaoh his power to release the Israelites. In the same breath, God will also harden Pharaoh's heart so he won't let Israel go. And later what we will see is that Pharaoh hardens his own heart against God. So it seems like somebody needs to get their story straight here because we have God hardening heart We have Pharaoh hardening heart. We have God saying, I'm gonna deliver my people and I want you to go show the power that I have to Pharaoh so he will let my people go. But then God says, actually, he's not gonna let my people go because I'm gonna harden his heart. So what is it? Is God giving Pharaoh a chance to let Israel go? Is he keeping Pharaoh from letting Israel go? Or is Pharaoh being stubborn and rebellious, and resistant himself, and, not, and, choosing not, and choosing to not let God's people go? The answer is yes. The answer is yes to all of these things. Simply put, God revealed to Moses here that he is sovereign. And what that means is that God is in complete control of his plan, and of Pharaoh's response to his plan. And this is not some philosophical concept that God is giving Moses here to wrestle with. This is not something that God's saying, hey, go and gather a bunch of theologians and just talk. Talk about this. Try to figure these things out. Try to make sense of this. This is confirmation to Moses from Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he is completely in this plan and that he is completely over this plan. That God himself is God. God's sovereignty and God himself doesn't exist to satisfy Moses' curiosity and he doesn't exist to satisfy our own curiosity. And what we're going to see as we move through this story of Exodus is we are going to see over and over and over again, God telling his people, I am God, and that's all you need to know. I am God, and you need to let me be God, right? I mean, just think about that for our own lives, and then I'm going to move on here. But just think about that. So often we run into these tensions in the scriptures where we can't make sense of how God is treating people or why God is choosing to do things or things that God seems to do that are contrary to other things that he has done. It seems like we run into these tensions and these contradictions and these things that we can't wrap our minds around about God. But I want you to think about it this morning. Do you want a God that you can understand? Do you want a God that you can fully wrap your mind around? The scriptures present God. God reveals himself in the scriptures. God reveals himself in our own lives, in the way that he deals with us, sometimes in ways that we just cannot understand. And I'll tell you this morning, praise God for that. Praise God that we cannot fully grasp who he is. And again, I keep referring to what we're going to get to coming up. But one of the things that we're going to see over and over again is we are going to come to points in Exodus where we have to, like with the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter 11, we just have to throw our hands up and just say, this is a mystery. This is a mystery, but praise God that he is God. Praise God that he is God. As we move forward in this story here, let's look at verses 24 through 26. And here's where things get a little dicey. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, which was Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, "Surely, you are a bridegroom of blood to me." So he let him alone. It was then that she said, "A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision." This is probably one of the most difficult and ambiguous passages in all of Scripture. Uh, I tried to do a lot of research this week, and what I found was that everybody that I read, scholars who have spent a lot of time digging into this passage, studying this passage, everybody kind of came to a a conclusion of like, we kind of know what's happening here, but we really don't. And there's a lot of different interpretations about what is going on here. But what I want to do is just try to work through some of the things that I think are clear. Um, and, and, and bring this into what I feel like is the thing that ties this all together. What God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that the Israelites are his son, his son, that's what ties this passage together. God revealed to Moses and to Israel, something about himself that they hadn't known before, something that was new, that he was their father and that they were his firstborn son. They were the family heir, so to speak. This was the covenant relationship that we've talked about before, that God had with their fathers, with their father Abraham, their father Isaac, their father Jacob. This Relationship, this familial relationship didn't start here. This is what it had been ever since God made that covenant with them hundreds of years before. But God brings this out and explains this to Moses in a new way. And he's primed his people for this. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates, he says, Uh, The writer of Genesis tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image. What was God saying there? Let us make man and let us make woman to be our representatives on earth, to show earth, to to, to operate on earth as we would, to be our image bearers, to reflect and to represent us. But then what we read is that as sin comes into the world, things begin to change, and that representation begins to look different. And we read very early that Adam and Eve have children of their own. They birth children of their own. But those two children, Cain and Abel, take very different paths. And Cain kills Abel. But at the end of chapter 4, we read that Eve had another son that she named Seth, and the writer of Genesis puts in there a little descriptor to, to tell us that she had Seth because her son Abel was killed. So God comes in and provides someone else Someone else to keep this line of his people going. And we see that, that more people come from Seth, people that know God and, 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 and recognize who God is. We remember in Genesis chapter 22, as we get to Abraham, God has called Abraham out. He's made a covenant. He says, you're going to be the father of my people. But Abraham doesn't have a son. And he waits years and years and years for this son and finally God gives him a son and then what does God tell him to do? I want you to go and kill this son. I want you to go sacrifice this son. And then at the last moment, Abraham is willing to do that. Abraham shows his faith in God, which is just a tragic, terrible situation, again, that we can't explain, that we don't understand why. But Abraham is willing to kill his only son. And then at the last moment, God provides a substitute, a ram that he sacrifices to the Lord. And what we see is over and over again, this son, this father-son relationship that God has continued to move his people along throughout history in this familial relationship. And he tells Moses here, you tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son, that Israel is special to me. We're going to talk more in a minute about this, but I just want to recognize the reality in the room here that when, I, when we talk about God as father, I recognize that probably more of us in this room have a non-existent, broken, strained, or maybe at best weird relationship with our dads than not. It's just the reality. The longer I get to know people and am and, and in other people's lives, I just realize that good relationships with fathers, are becoming increasingly hard to come by. Some of you are just beginning to understand how the reality of your relationship with your father has and is deeply affecting your life now as an adult, how it affects your relationships with other people, how it affects, if you're married, your relationship with your spouse, we're dealing with the absence or the abandonment, the, the pain, the emotional wounds, maybe abuse or betrayal. And even those of us who have good relationships with our fathers still have to acknowledge that we grew up with our dad's limitations and weaknesses. And for those of us who are fathers in this room, our kids are going to experience that as well to certain degrees. Men who were supposed to love us unconditionally, but didn't. Men who were supposed to protect us from harm, but didn't. Men who were supposed to respect and cherish our moms, but didn't. Men who were supposed to teach us men in the room about how to be men, but didn't. And we're supposed to show you ladies what it means to expect, what you should expect from a man, but, but didn't. And so when we talk about God being our Father, I recognize that that comes with a lot of baggage. That comes with a lot of wounds and, and potential uh, uh, deep, deep, deep mistrust. God as father isn't as comforting and as empowering to some of us as that notion should be and as God intended it to be. What I want to do as we close out this morning is I want to bring that back around but I just want to acknowledge that here. I want to acknowledge that as we're talking about these truths that we also have a human lens that we're viewing these things through and that that's important and that shouldn't be just tossed to the side. But that's the context here. God is saying, Israel is my son. I am their father. We have a special relationship. And that's the vantage point that we have for why God is doing what he's doing here. That's the vantage point that we have seeing this. Why is God delivering his people? Why is he stepping into their situation? Because he loves them because he is their father, because they are special to him. And so as we come to verses 24 and 26, and it just gets weird, and there's so many questions here, that is what I want us to remember. Because there's a lot of things here we don't know for sure. Who did God want to kill here? If Moses, why would he want to kill Moses, who he's just commissioned to go and be the deliverer of his people out of Egypt? How did his wife know immediately what to do and Moses didn't know what to do? Which son was circumcised? What does it mean that she touched his feet with foreskin? I don't know. We're not even going to address that. Um, Who let who alone in this after all that was happening? And what in the world does it mean that Moses is a bridegroom of blood? Here's some things I think we know for sure or that are fairly clear. Moses was the object of God's wrath here. And Moses was the object of God's wrath because his son was not circumcised. And that's important. That's important in this story because God had made himself known to Moses and God was going to make himself known to his people in relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What God was doing in their lives and how they were to know him was connected to the covenant promises that he had made with their forefathers. God will deliver his people because of that covenant. God will lead them out of Egypt and into a new land because of that covenant. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That was who Moses, that was the line that Moses was a part of. How could Moses lead the covenant people of God? out of slavery in Egypt and into a promised land, if Moses himself had not observed the obligations of that covenant, mainly in Genesis chapter 17, God says, my relationship with you is this, but this is what you are going to do. You are going to circumcise every male child as a sign, as a physical sign that you are in this relationship with me. Moses had not done that, either out of ignorance. Maybe Moses didn't know. Or maybe he was just lazy and didn't think it was important. But out of a very basic command that God gave, an obligation of the covenant, Moses had not obeyed. And this was a wake-up call, I believe. Because if you notice, the writer says, and the, in verse 24, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. God could have put him to death like that. God didn't need, an, he didn't need a process. He didn't need to give Moses a chance. But here we see that God gives Moses a chance to make it right. God gives Moses a moment to understand that not only was he in relationship with God and that God was his father, that God was the father of his people, but they also had a responsibility to God. This was an important lesson for Moses here. And it's careful to note here, the writer is careful to note who it is that understands this. Because once again, Moses' life is saved by a woman. You remember his mom saved him from the genocide in Egypt by putting him in a basket. You remember that Pharaoh's daughter saved Moses by adopting him and bringing him into her house. And here Moses' wife jumps in and saves Moses, saves Moses' son, By doing what God expected and what God had commanded. This is significant. This passage is significant, even with the ambiguities, because it tells us something very, very vital and important about who our God is. That God is a loving and a protective father, but that he takes his children's obedience very seriously. That... This incident is symbolic of what God's relationship will be like for the next generation, for the next several generations, where we will see over and over again God lovingly, caring, caringly protecting his children. And over and over again, they just can't get it right. They want to go back. They want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to the other gods. They want to go mesh with the other cultures. Over and over again, God comes to them lovingly and says, serve me, love me, experience the life that I will give you because of our relationship together. But over and over again, his people reject him. And they think they know better. Israel will rebel against God's covenant and he will discipline them. And sometimes it's severe. Sometimes it's very severe and sometimes it lasts for a long time. But over and over again, we see that God's faithfulness remains and his love is never taken away. And in the rest of this passage, we won't read the the rest of the verses here. But what we see is that Moses and his brother Aaron get together and Moses commissions Aaron and says, Moses brings Aaron into this plan tells Aaron what God has in store and what they are supposed to do. We see them return to Egypt, and they are received warmly by the Israelites. They're fired up, and it's like, yes, deliverance, let's go, let's do this thing. But as we'll see in later chapters, it's really short-lived. It's really short-lived. This passage, as crazy as it is and kind of weird as it is, it really prepares us for the rest of the narrative in Exodus. This this passage is is taking what has been in the past and what will happen in the future, and it's bringing them together. And it's a significant point for us this morning as we begin to understand the bigger arch of God's redemption story and God's plan to deliver his people. Because all of these things that we've talked about this morning point to Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to wrap up this morning. I want to go back and I want to talk about God as our Father. God is our Father this morning. Why can we say that? Why can we sit here this morning and talk about God as our Father? If you turn to Matthew chapters 2 and chapter 3, you will see that same language of sonship that God bestows on Jesus. That when Jesus is brought out, if you remember, very similarly to, his, to the Israelites in Exodus, there's a, a rabid king, An angry and an evil king that seeks to kill Jesus and his parents flee, where? To Exodus, or I'm sorry, to Egypt. And in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes the Old Testament, referring to Jesus saying, I will bring my son out of Egypt. In Matthew chapter 3, as Jesus steps onto the scene publicly and is baptized by John, what does his father say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. In John chapter 17, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he prays to his father and says, Father, I want them, his disciples, and all of us who would come after to know you. And we know who God is through his son, Jesus. And in Romans chapter 8, listen to what Paul says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Those of us who, through faith, have Jesus Christ as our Savior, are sons and daughters of God. And the language that the New Testament uses to say this and to describe this is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ, that when God looks at Jesus, he sees us. And when God sees us, he sees Jesus. We are in Christ. Our relationship with God is one with a loving, caring, protective father because we are in his son we have been made one with jesus we have been brought into the family of god and those things aren't just big theological doctrinal things that are we talk about in the abstract but in a very real sense day after day after day we live in a relationship with god as our father we know that god knows our lives We know that he cares about the good things and the bad things, the things that we uh, are are successful in and our weaknesses and our limitations. He knows our pain. He knows our hurt. He knows what we deal with in broken relationships with other people. He cares about those things. He he loves us through those things. His faithfulness to us is new every morning. The deficiencies that we have in our own, Relationships with our fathers, the things that our fathers have warped and twisted about what our true father is, we find those things in God Himself. And it's not abstract, it's not ethereal, it's real, it's tangible. It's tangible. God is our Father and we are His children. Do you notice in Exodus 4 what God says? To tell Pharaoh, he says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son. Let them go. Why? So that they may serve me. We talked about this last week, that God is redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt to service of him from service to an evil kingdom and into a different kingdom to serve a good and righteous king. They were special. They were to represent God, their father, to the nations. They fall over and over and over again. They keep wanting to go back. They keep falling back into slavery. They keep wandering away from their loving father. Does that sound familiar? Is that something that we can identify with this morning? But remember what Paul says? We didn't receive a spirit of slavery. God has brought us out of sin. God has brought us out of having to be slaves to what this world says being slaves to what the, God's enemy tells us is good. But it really isn't. God has brought us out of that and into a new life. A life that is filled with good things. A life that is filled with knowing him and experiencing him and experiencing the life that he has intended us to live. Being in Jesus doesn't just bring us into the family of God, it provides us with the power to actually live like God's children, to live like his representatives, to show the world that we are his. You see, freedom isn't just being able to do whatever we want. True freedom isn't just following our own desires. True freedom isn't just living a life without any restraints, any boundaries. True freedom comes through obedience, comes through service, comes through laying our lives down for each other and saying yes to God's wise and parental direction in our lives. And what we see throughout the New Testament is that same kind of language Paul, Peter, the apostles, they use that same language to say that you are a family. You are in Christ and God is your father. You are sons, you are daughters, you are heirs of all the promises of God. And all the commands, all the things that God says for us to do, for us to not do, are coming from a God who knows what's best. A father who is protecting us. From harm, a father who knows what true life is and says, if you will trust me, you will experience it. We want God to be our father. Because of the brokenness of relationships in this world, we long for a good father, a true father, a perfect father who always treats us with our best intentions in mind. We want our Father to lead us, to guide us away from what doesn't bring us life. And we have this relationship through faith in Jesus, who was the perfect son. That even when we backslide, even when we follow our own way, God does not come to us in wrath. God does not come to us demanding our life. But because Jesus has laid his life down, we can go to our Father and experience forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and the power to move towards him in love and in service. Because Jesus was the true Son in whom the Father is well-pleased we live in a relationship with God where he looks at us and says, I am well pleased in you. As we come and take communion this morning, as we take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice, we do that because of our relationship with God our Father. And we do it knowing that we don't deserve it, that we didn't earn it, but that because Jesus was the perfect son, Because through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he pleased his father. He took the sin. He took the condemnation. He took the death that we deserved for not. We can come this morning and know that we have a relationship with our father. I want to invite you to do that this morning if you know him. If you are a Christian this morning, to come in faith, to come believing in hope that what God has promised is true and that you are a deeply loved son and daughter of his. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're still trying to figure those things out, if you're wrestling even just to believe those things, just stay in your seat. This isn't something magic. It's not something that is, is, is a, a spiritual power that you can imbibe. It's a symbol of what we believe is true. And if we can help you this morning in believing that, we want to. You could talk to me after the service. You could talk to Tony. You could talk to Tamise, Brian, Tara, so many. And we would love to tell you about that. Hear your questions. Pray with you. Talk with you about what it means to live as a son and a daughter of the Father. We'll have stations up here and we'll have a station in the back. So let me pray and then come in hope, come in peace, come resting in those promises this morning. God, we thank you that you are a perfect father. We thank you that even in our best efforts, we could never earn a relationship with you. We don't deserve that relationship. But because of Jesus Christ, you look at us and you say, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my special people. God, forgive us when so often we choose to live as though we know what's best for us. We, we spurn and we reject your fatherly wisdom, the instructions that you've given us. And I pray that as a community, we would be people who begin to live in the security of knowing that we are loved by you, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. And I pray that we would be a light to this community. And that as we talk about God as our father, that that would be words of hope, words of healing, words of restoration for so many people who are living in broken relationships with their own dads. I pray that as we experience the love and the faithfulness and the joy of being in relationship with you that we would in turn bring that and be people of peace in our community. Would you use us? Would you work in us and through us? We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Be thou my